I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV and support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash theopenmind. I'm delighted to welcome back to the broadcast Dr. John Potter, epidemiologist. Thank you so much for joining me again, Dr. Potter. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. It's an honor to welcome you. We had a detailed discussion about New Zealand's successful mitigation strategy, and now we are in the midst of an unprecedented vaccination deployment. I wanted to start by getting your insight into the vaccination passport debate. I must say I'm at the moment still sitting on the fence about this. Um, the the possibility that that then becomes a way of discriminating against, particularly against uh, people from low and middle income countries who might end up with far less access to vaccines and therefore will get vaccinated much more uh, slowly, uh, that would then put further brakes on their potential for um, various enterprises in the world. Um, and you mentioned fraud. Um, there's no question that, that it, it would become a roaring trade um, to, to produce uh, the, the, the facsimile of a, uh, of a passport. You know, obviously, passports can be made high quality and, and so on. We use them all the time. Um, but I, I could imagine um, if the, each each country has a different process, that some at least would be problematic. I, 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 on the other hand, um, letting people in to places they would like to live or like to work or like to um, move to um, seems seems like a, a sort of decent human thing to be doing. Also, which is why I'm I'm kind of torn at the moment. I just, I just don't know what the answer is. You're torn, but you recognize the extreme measures that countries in Asia um, and New Zealand, of course, took. And that's because they were disciplined in their mitigation. And I'm wondering if that same disciplinarian approach ought to be applied to the passports. Uh, otherwise, the alternative would be folks viewing border closures as permanent um, because they are fearful that they are going to be importing new cases. And I just think that you in particular, being the former chief science advisor to the Ministry of Health in New Zealand, and of course, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology, have insight into the importance of mitigation and is not the passport the second best thing after the border closure or put differently, isn't it the strictest thing to do if you're not going to close your border or you're going to gradually reopen your border? Basically what New Zealand and Taiwan and Vietnam and China um, and Australia for that matter, although they didn't call it this, um, aimed for was elimination. And that's a central concept in infectious disease epidemiology. And it, it refers to the absence of a specific infection in a country or a region. And it's always a 
goal. It's a process towards a goal, not an achieved state. It's like painting a bridge. You start at one end and by the time you've got to the other, you're, you're back doing something else. Um, and the criteria for elimination and measles is a good example, make allowances for imported cases or occasional outbreaks as long as they're stamped out within a defined short period. It it contrasts with eradication, which is um, a disease that's become extinct worldwide and the only one we've got is uh, is smallpox. Um, So there weren't any... When when this started, there weren't really good criteria for what um, elimination looked like, but it did involve, as you've just said, when when it began to be defined well by Michael Baker in New Zealand, um, it involved border management, it involved case identification and tracing, it involved surveillance, including widespread surveillance of those without disease, distancing, public communication to improve things like hand hygiene, protecting vulnerable populations, improving the health system capacity, um, and protecting healthcare workers. So all of those things were part of the package of doing elimination. Now, what you're asking is, would uh, if you are now going to manage the border differently rather than exclusion and quarantine, um, would would passports be part of that? And the answer is, Yes, I could imagine that's a proper um, debate we ought to have uh, because it, it, with, the right, um, with the right conditions applied, we could do it because you could imagine that you, you could come in if you've got a passport or you could come in if you're willing to be quarantined and isolated. So, you know, there, there could be deals cut that would allow um, economies to open and borders to open, yes. I'm not sure there's full agreement. Actually, I'm sure there isn't full agreement on that yet, Um, but it's certainly a debate we should be having. If you were wanting to prepare your public health infrastructure, is there a way to preclude the possibility of importing cases and not apply a system like uh, the passport, but rather... Um, rigorous testing and even more advanced testing than we have now. Um, at the end of the day, the testing and quarantine model is not foolproof. Not a, a passport is not necessarily foolproof either. But do you think the passport model would ultimately be more effective than the testing and quarantining model? Uh, One of the problems with uh, the testing and quarantine model, obviously, is if, for instance, just taking New Zealand, um, if we were just to have normal tourist influx coming in, there's no way we could handle the the need for quarantine space and testing time uh, that would be involved in a usual influx of tourists. And that's going to be true for essentially every country in the world. So um, certainly setting up um, a system that either says um, you, you, have, you have to have a, 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 um, a, a passport that says you've been vaccinated or you, there's some very limited number of people who can continue to come through the funnel. At the moment, the funnel is fairly full just with returning people 
um, who have citizenship or residency in New Zealand. So adding others to it would just not work at the moment for New Zealand. And I, again, I imagine this is true pretty much everywhere. So it would certainly make things different and it would certainly make uh, control easier. You'd still have all the problems that are involved with escape from vaccines and all the other things. Um, so you'd still be needing to hold your elimination strategy high on the agenda. When we last spoke, we discussed the enigma still associated with transmission, right? We were speaking at a time when there was a new case in New Zealand, even though the travel ban had been in effect. And you postulated what might be, you know, the evidence of transmission, even without importing it from another country or someone from across the border. Has the New Zealand Health Authority come to any more definitive determination about the kind of mystery cases that popped up after elimination seemed to be achieved uh, that could give more insight into this question of, of transmission? Uh, the answer is no. There, there's, there, there have been additional, there's a, there was an additional outbreak relatively recently. And again, the, the index case was, uh, has not, the cause of the index case has not been identified. Um, the, the Chinese have published some data that suggest that food packaging, we talked about food packaging, frozen food, that sort of thing. Um, the Chinese have published some data suggesting that maybe there's a long persistence of virus on food packaging. In the US, um, the FDA has ruled it out completely and said, this doesn't happen, at, at least in the US. Um, so the reason why elimination um, is such an important piece is that as soon as the case pops up, whether you understand where that case came from or not, you ring fence it and you ring fence all the contacts and you, you spread your net out until you know that you've got right round the whole thing. And you uh, maybe do uh, short-term shutdowns. We actually had one in Auckland for, for a week um, last week. Uh, so you just, you, as long as you've got the elimination strategy in, in mind and you are only getting the occasional case, then you can manage um, even the mystery ones that you don't understand. At the moment, we don't understand some of those and you can't see the mystery ones in places where the, there's just an overwhelming set of infections and we can't track and trace everybody. I mean, in the US, you're getting even now 60,000 cases a day. Um, nobody is keeping track of where all those came from. Um, although they're keeping an eye on the important variants that are popping up, not just any old variant, but the what's up, what are called variants of concern. Those are being tracked better and there's more genomic sequencing going on in the US that will, will track these better. 
as the numbers come down, remember that on, on January the 8th in the US, there were more than 300,000 cases a day. So the numbers have come down. But as Tony Fauci's just said, um, just a couple of days ago, 60,000 a day is not a plateau we want to sit on. We've got to continue to drive that down. And, and when you get down to pretty small numbers, then you can begin to see whether there are some of these mystery cases and maybe we'll have more energy and effort uh, to, to understand where did they come from. At the moment, it remains mystery. While there was a strong chorus of the scientific establishment talking about transmission um, through fomites, transmission through coughs and sneezes, it's become more and more evident that that mystery is airborne and that we don't know still precisely how airborne transmission works with this virus. Is that I think accurate? that's fair. And it, it certainly, I think the consensus is now indeed. I mean, certainly if you get coughed on by somebody at short distance and you get large particles, you know, that's a, that's a clear uh, spread. The evidence for fomites is low, but not zero. Uh, the evidence for aerosolization, aerosolization is, um, is now, I think, fairly compelling even though we don't fully understand how far, what the load has to be. Do you have to be, you know, downstream? Can you be in the wake of somebody? I mean, there's all sorts of things that haven't been worked out, although people keep trying to, to understand that. At the moment, it, it's accepted as a major route, perhaps the major route, um, and, and that's why masks work. And, and as evidence of, of masks working, um, even in the US, what's, what's really interesting is if you look at for this last winter, um, the influenza deaths in the US, in the previous year, um, so 2019, there were about uh, 22,000 adult deaths this last 12 months, 450. There are usually more than two, around 200 children who die. Last year, just one. So the, the steps we've taken to control the virus, even though that hasn't worked terribly well in the United States, the masking has got to have been really important because a huge proportion of the influenza deaths have disappeared. In New Zealand, we had eight cases of influenza last winter, eight cases. Um, so again, you know, clear evidence that, that there's control uh, just by the way in which we behave. We recently hosted Michael Minna, epidemiologist at Harvard, and he is one of the voices, I say courageously, who has argued that the FDA's unwillingness to approve sophisticated new at-home testing technology can be directly attributed to or can be blamed for the thousands and, and in fact, tens and hundreds of thousands of deaths. He argues that if months ago each American home or household 
had on a weekly basis five to ten at-home tests that we would have prevented mass casualties. And he says that were it not for a very subjective and black box, he calls it a black box at the FDA, um, some of that technology might have approved and worked quite efficiently. What is your sense of uh, if and how uh, at-home rapid testing should have been applied and still needs to be applied? Absolutely, testing has been crucial uh, to the management. And in New Zealand, where the number of cases has been modest and, as we've described, ring-fensible, um, the the testing has always just ramped up really rapidly around those so that you actually, you know, do several tens of thousands of tests within days, which is a big number in New Zealand if you think about the total size of the population. Um, so I agree. Um, the, and that's 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 professionally administered testing. That's nasal swabs. Um but I, I agree. I, I think if we had access to tests that behaved a bit like uh, pregnancy tests, um, we would have a much better idea of what's going on. And they, as long as they were highly sensitive and highly specific, uh, which doesn't mean perfect, right? It means you will get some false negatives. You'll get some people who uh, actually are carrying the virus who don't register and you'll get some people who have apparently got a virus and don't, as long as you do multiple testing, because this is what we do in epidemiology all the time. We know all our tests have some degree of escape from the absolute truth. If you've got highly um, sensitive and specific tests, you can use them in this way and people can manage their, their own uh, and then know that they should isolate. Now, the part of the problem, of course, is you still require people to, to behave responsible, responsibly once they actually know that they've got something. And that's not always the case. So there's a hole in the, in the system, but it could be definitely boosted by some sort of rapid, easily administered home-based test. Agreed. Dr. Potter, do you have any explanation for why the FDA has stalled so much on the testing technology? Again, people like Michael Minna, also Eric Topol, um, you are no longer based in the U.S., but you practice here and researched here for some time. It seems as though the vaccination emergency authorization and approval process has been rather transparent, whereas the testing uh, and all these new possibilities in testing that were denied oxygen because of the FDA's unwillingness to approve them, Minna and Topol argue that's their failure. I'm afraid if Minna doesn't know, um, uh, from this distance, um, I mean, you, you, we've had um, a number of years now where the FDA has been uh, not playing at the top of its game, uh, like many in U.S. institutions, and with the new administration, some of those various agencies are scrambling to get their game back at at a one level. I don't know why that hasn't been true 
in for the FDA over there. I have no insights at all, I'm afraid. Um, and if Minna doesn't know, I, would, I wouldn't even venture a guess. He does say it's a black box and it was a subjective process by which a, a whole subsection of technologies were dismissed or perhaps there was the fear of releasing something to the public, having people test, and then that because there was no control mechanism and there was there was no uh, pharmaceutical or medical supervision, if you will, um, that uh, it would be a free-for-all, a kind of wild west that uh, they were not willing to uh, or prepared to accept. Um, when you have a new disease, each person is their own best shield for, like we discussed, disciplined preparedness. And uh, to, to, to basically tell the American public, we don't trust you with this technology, which is ultimately with a message that it has sent, um, suggests that that was a subjective, uh, not science-based reasoning for uh, lacking approval or authorization for rapid at-home testing. Uh, let me ask you, Dr. Powder, about the vaccination. So we have various deployments of vaccines, the primary ones in the U.S. so far, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J. We have AstraZeneca, Oxford, and Novavax uh, elsewhere around the world. And uh, the Chinese and Indian vaccines, Russian as well, um, that are being imported to various countries, um, not all third world countries, some developed, some still developing countries. Um, what is your outlook at this point about the various vaccination deployments and the, the the kind of normalcy you have in New Zealand, when that might be at all approachable from a global perspective? Yeah, uh, a proper, proper question. It, it does look as though uh, you mentioned, you began with Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, AstraZeneca, um, and certainly those have all gone through really clear, transparent, um, estimates of their efficacy and they've performed well. Um, there's, there's evidence from China, Russia and India um, that their vaxxers are, for, are behaving pretty well too. Uh, we haven't quite seen it as clearly, I suspect, but it does look as though they're, they're doing pretty well. Um, so you've got this, you know, six or seven vaccines around the world uh, one of the problems is, is everybody going to have access? Um, there are blocks. Uh, the way in which uh, vaccines are, uh, are patented uh, makes some capacity for low and middle income countries who might otherwise have the capacity to actually crank them out, even though they didn't have the capacity to develop them. Um, and we've seen this with, with other drugs. Um, so the capacity to improve the distribution seems to me to be a worldwide problem that uh, leaders should get their heads together and say, let's do this. Because in exactly the same way that New Zealand has a team of five million who've agreed to work pretty much together to control the system here, we have seven, eight billion people in the world. Um, and, and in the end, we're all in this together. So getting everybody vaccinated 
or at least a sufficient number that we begin to have a very decent control over the spread of this uh, seems to me to be something that there isn't a leader who shouldn't be able to get behind that because without what here's here's a thought uh, about vaccination vaccination is a tool it's a tactic but if you build it in to the kind of strategy that we've got in New Zealand, the elimination strategy, then you begin to get control of everything. If you do all the things we talked about earlier on um, that involve personal behaviours and you add to it the tactic of a vaccination, then you begin to get, get control everywhere. And if we agreed that we should be able to do this worldwide, uh, and I don't see any reason why even now we can't think about elimination worldwide. It's, it's a, it's a country specific behavior, but we could do it and, and vaccination would make it easier. And without an elimination strategy, we're going to see still in places where there's, there's no control of any sort. We're going to see rising cases. We're still going to see accumulating mortality. We're going to see in various places, healthcare systems overwhelmed as we've seen. And then sort of secondary excess mortality because of people who can't get into the hospitals with other things, trauma and heart attacks and so on. We're going to see continued accumulation of mutation and new new variants, some of which are more infectious, some of which are more lethal. We're going to see um, a continued burden on people's mental health and social well-being. And we're going to see the accumulation of what people call long COVID or the long haulers. Um, the, the U.S. has just said, Francis Collins just a couple of days ago announced that they're going to, NIH is going to expend a billion dollars researching the causes and prevention and treatment of long COVID. And we're also going to see the, the danger uh, of, of animal reservoirs. The longer this floats around in our human environment, it's also going to be exposing our uh, animals, pets um, in our vicinity. So companion animals, particularly dogs and cats, are going to get exposed to this. And at some point, the and the virus has already been shown to infect cats, um, it might well uh, make a jump. And then you get another reservoir that becomes a problem for humans. So there's a a great deal of evidence that going for an elimination strategy in which vaccination is one tactic, one tool, really makes sense. Are you at all interested in the findings of the human challenge trial um, at Oxford in learning more about treatment methods outside of the prevention, the vaccination? Um, are you at all interested in what those human challenge trials will will find? Obviously, the more tools we've got for handling this, because we're the better. Because yes, we can do prevention by an elimination strategy, well supported and buffered and 
and strengthened by having vaccination widespread in the world. But we're still going to get cases. Um, I mean, in the same way, we're go- and, and that's probably going to be true for a long time. It's going to pop up. It's not going to go away completely. We're going to, as I said before, elimination is a process, not an endpoint. We need to continue the process. Um, but obviously, in the same way, I've spent a lot of my life worrying about the prevention of cancer. But that doesn't mean I don't think it's a really good idea when we get some better ways to treat it. Um, and the same thing is true for other infections. We, we prevent influenza by uh, vaccination. We prevent measles by vaccination. We prevent a whole lot of other diseases by max- vaccination. But when a case turns up, we treat it with all the tools that we possibly can. So if you can develop better tools for treating uh, infection with SARS-CoV-2, then absolutely I'm in favor of that, without a doubt. The reason that I'm asking you about, um, as an epidemiologist and public health specialist, that because basically you're infecting a, a small community and you're guarding that community and ensuring that no one else is infected, mm-hmm. but you're, you're doing something that is, that is rather unique and that you're creating a community of infected people. And um, we, the final question I have for you at this juncture, and we'll surely continue these um, in the months ahead is we still don't know how that first community of folks in Wuhan or elsewhere was infected. Um, there's various speculation. And it's just interesting to me to hear from experts as to whether that's important for them to know and whether they think that we will ever know it. And I guess I ask you those questions. Do you think that we ever will know the origin of whether this was a lab escape or whether it was from an animal um, and, and you know whether we'll know whether it's important to know that for for the epi, epidemiological kind of survey that you would like to do in assessing kind of how this how this occurred in the first place and, and the kind of domino effect that it had around the world. Right. I think it's really important that we try and discover what went on, not so much because we it will hugely inform what we're doing now with this particular virus, but it will allow us to have a better understanding of how some of those steps across from an animal virus to a human virus actually occur. So the more information we can accumulate, the more likely we are to be able to control another pandemic. And uh, Alexander, I think you know um, there are other pandemics coming. I can't say in the next period of time identify a, a, a time, but I can I can tell you for sure. And one of the reasons why that's true is because humans are increasingly um, intruding on the natural world of animals. And for instance, um, the the Ebola virus jumped from primates in Africa. The, the, the virus that, um, we, the coronavirus 
almost certainly began in bats. How it got across is an interesting question, but it, the, the bats are seriously likely to be the, the, the primary source. And, and there are bats around the world, and particularly in Asia, that carry all sorts of coronaviruses, which could become another and different pandemic. And then who knows how many other potential infections there are that we haven't even catalogued yet. So understanding it, and how it happened seems to be a re really important thing to be doing. And one of the ways to do it is, of course, to just do lots and lots of sequencing for as, as far through backwards, if you like, trying to back sequence and say, where did this actually, what, what are the close relatives? In the same way that we forward sequence um, and track where the variants are coming from, um, and note that, you know, this virus has got 17 separate mutations uh, over the parent virus that we last looked at. Um, and we've seen that with the Brazilian variant. We've seen it with the South African variant, with the, with the, with the UK variant. If we can track backwards and get, we've got somewhat close to where it is in the, in the bat world, but we haven't got really close, close enough to say, aha, this is where it came from. Getting that information is important because it will allow us to understand the steps that are involved and may be important too for the thing I just mentioned. Um, can we can we monitor and make sure that we're not getting um, infection in companion animals that would then become a further reservoir for infecting humans in the future? Dr. Professor John Potter, thank you as always for your insight today. Alexander, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, always good to talk with you.